If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. And looking at the uh, entirety of this passage, I entitled it, The Glory of God and the Hardness of Man. There are certainly some specific issues that are raised, but I think the center point of this is the hardened heart of man and what is God's intention, what is God's glory. Uh, Let us pray and we will enter into this study this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to direct us. Uh, We are inundated with information from every angle at every moment in our life practically. None of it holds true like your word holds true. None of it is infallible. None of it is God-breathed. Some of it may be true, and oftentimes we don't know, Father. But we know that this scripture that we have before us was given to us by you, and we can live by it. Lord, we need you. I appreciate the prayer request this morning. We need you. Your people need you from Lebanon to Uganda to Wichita, Kansas. Perhaps more than we have realized in our lifetime. What a good thing that is, Lord. That we would see how desperately we need you. Lead us. Show yourself to us this morning through your word. Amen. Verse 1 begins with, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed... He taught them again. On the map here, just to get a picture of where we're at, uh, we see that Jesus' custom continues, and this time he leaves the area of Capernaum. And if you look up on the, it's the very top of the map there, Capernaum, and he heads to Judea, and he's going on a southerly route, and that red line shows you that he goes down and then along the eastern side of the Jordan, sometimes called the other side of the Jordan, the Transjordan. That region is also known as Perea. At this time, Perea is ruled by Herod Antipas. That is an important detail as we begin to hear the Pharisees pose their question. Remember that. Jesus is ministering now for a period of time in the area of Perea, And that is governed by Herod Antipas. Matthew 19 verse 2 adds that in addition to teaching, Jesus also healed them there. So Jesus, as was his custom, throughout Galilee would gather among thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people, and he would heal them. And when it says them, it is inclusive, it is is thorough. He healed them all when they came to him. Casting out demons, causing lame to be able to walk, the blind who had never seen, to be able to finally see, people even that were dead at times. Sometimes dead bodies Jesus would touch and they would come to life. Now he has come down to this area of Perea and he is doing much the same thing. Now we get to verse 2 through 12 and I've given it the heading, the corruption of a hard heart. And this may seem like a strange heading for this section of Scripture. It, doesn't, it seems to be about marriage and about divorce and, and perhaps remarriage. Uh, and those will be a major part of the message this morning. But 
All those topics come spilling out because of the hard hearts of these Pharisees who refuse to believe in Jesus the Messiah and the hard hearts of the Jewish people centuries before who corrupted God's design for marriage. A hard heart. A hard heart has staggering impact then and now. Let us examine our hearts as, as we listen to this, as we look at this word Hard hearts destroy. Verse 2 and 3 reveal the hearts. Verse 2, the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. So what is revealed about the Pharisees? They have distorted God's word. Why would these religious leaders bother to ask Jesus a question about divorce? Mark tells us, doesn't he? Why did they ask him? Because they wanted to trap him. They wanted to test him. The Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees have already begun plotting to kill Jesus. They have gained power, prestige, and wealth through their manipulation, through their intimidation, through corruption against the people of Israel. And Jesus is a threat to topple it all. So now they hatch one of their wicked schemes to trap him. But I ask you, how could, how could this question be a trap? It's an honest question, isn't it, about the unfortunate problem of divorce. Is it not? It is not. That is not what is being sought here. Commentators indicate that at this time, many of the Pharisees and other men of influence and position in Jewish culture freely engaged in divorce. So why the question? Why would they ask this question? There were two opposing schools of rabbis regarding the topic of divorce. Both of them appeared to base their position on a scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4. And that verse 1 reads this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. The significant disagreement between these two schools was over the definition of the word decency. What does it mean? Well, we have the school of Shammai. Shammai were the conservatives. They believed that a man was just in divorcing his wife only if she had committed Sexual sin of some kind. Then we have what was called the school of Hillel. Another rabbi. And he took a very liberal position. And allowed that the husband could divorce his wife. For practically anything. Anything that was not pleasing to him. This included a poorly cooked dinner. This could even include. The man setting his eyes upon another woman. Who was more attractive and more pleasing to him. So then he could, could divorce his current wife if he chose. So we have these two competing extremes amongst the rabbis on this topic of divorce. Now let me switch gears for a moment and, and look at the trap that they've laid. There are at least two bullets in this loaded gun the Pharisees have pointed at Jesus. The first bullet, Herod Antipas. Remember this ruler of the region that Jesus is now teaching in. Why? Think. Think with me. Why would this question have anything to do with him. 
Why would such a question have anything to do with Herod Antipas? Because, turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 17. Mark 6, verse 17 says, For Herod himself had sent and had John the Baptist arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Why is it not lawful? Because both Herod and Herodias had divorced their spouses so that they could marry each other. Not to mention the incest part of this because Herodias is actually the niece of Herod. So John is bringing to bear the scriptures in this situation. John's faithfulness and his boldness and his witness of the word of God cost him his life. A little bit later in that story we will read that John's head was taken from him to please the daughter of Herodias, Herod's wife. It was just a convoluted, perverted party that was going on. And things were happening there. But it all was based upon the fact that John stood for the word of God upon marriage in the face of the political leaders at that time. John's faithful and bold witness of the word of God cost him his life. If the Pharisees can get the right words out of Jesus' mouth with this question, they hope that Herod will have him arrested as well. With the right kind of manipulation, they may even be able to get Jesus killed, as happened with John the Baptist. The second bullet, popular opinion. The Pharisees assume Jesus' answer will either fall on the side of Shammai, the conservative, or Hillel, the liberal. Whichever way Jesus goes, and the Pharisees likely are thinking he will favor toward the conservative, if that happens... They hope to show the inconsistency and flaws of that position before the crowd. A crowd that is as liberal on this issue as they are. A crowd that is very liberal on divorce. That is revealed about the heart of the Pharisees. This is where they're coming from. This is why they set this trap. Here is what verse 3 reveals about Christ. His dependence upon God's word. Verse 3, And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? Jesus goes straight to the source of truth. He does not play into what is a preferred rabbinical interpretation, nor does he play into what is a popular opinion. He asks, what did Moses command you? Which is much the same as saying, what does the law of God have to say? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And here we have the results of the hard heart. In verse 4, they are resorting to an allowance. And this is an allowance, not a command. It's the word uh, translated as permitted or allowed, epitrepo, which is quite different than a command. The Pharisees had to admit at this point that Scripture does not command divorce. The certificate of divorce mentioned by the Pharisees and also recorded in Deuteronomy 24 was a literal written bill or a scroll. And on that scroll was a document that said the reason for the divorce and the certification that the divorce was official. So they, th these men would give this to their wife. They would send them away and they'd give them some paper and have them out of them. 
But Jesus immediately points out that the Pharisees have grossly misunderstood Deuteronomy 24. They have no idea what it really means. Why God has it. The reason of the allowance in verse 5 is explained by Jesus. And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Again, the hardness of heart. A hard heart is a strong accusation. And it is a fearful condition. No man or no woman is immune. Be on guard. No man or no woman is immune to the hard heart. Hardness of heart occurred in both the Pharisees. If we look back in chapter 3 verse 5. When Jesus healed the man with the withered hand at the synagogue. Jesus Notice that he was saddened, he was gripped by the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees as this took place. But it was also in the apostles, in their unbelief regarding Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 men. Then shortly thereafter he walks on the water and he quiets the storm in Mark 6. And it was says because of their hardness of heart. We also read in Mark 16, 14, much later in the gospel, And this is after Jesus has been crucified, buried, and has risen. He appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Beware of the hardness of heart. Unbelief produces a hard heart in any and all of us. To minimize... To minimize our little or weak faith is dangerous. And we often do that. Well, I'm just weak of faith. Realize that is a dangerous place to remain in. It will create in us a hard heart and produce calamity beyond what we would imagine. Just look at what Jesus says it did here. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees saying that their hardness of heart caused Moses to legalize or or permit adultery. Insight from one commentator reads, Far from commanding or even permitting divorce, this injunction merely forbids a man to remarry a woman that he had divorced who had then been married to someone else. Then he goes on to say, By the time of Christ, few people were being executed for adultery, which was an Old Testament directive. Not only were people not being executed for adultery, they also were divorcing their wives at will. All the while deluding themselves into thinking the Old Testament permitted them to do so. Especially heartbreaking is that, end quote, especially heartbreaking is that God's original design is marred. The hardness of Israel's heart brought in divorce. And divorce results in brokenness, in loneliness, in poverty, in destruction for centuries from that moment, for millions and millions of people. I would venture to say everyone in this room has been touched by the, the act of divorce and its destructive forces. What it can do to a family. What it can do to children. What it can do when it rips the heart out of one of the spouses. The hard heart of man is what this discussion is about between Jesus and these men. This is why Jesus moves. And he moves quite quickly from the Pharisees' target Their target was a technicality of a rabbinic tradition to something of much greater significance. They wanted to argue with him about how and why they could divorce. 
That's what they wanted. But Jesus takes the conversation to a completely different level. He says in verse 6, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. He's saying return to the intention of God. Return to the intention of God. What God did in verse 6. What God did is He created Adam and Eve in the beginning. He created a man and a woman. He did not create a herd of people. To attempt a variety of relationships between same genders or multiple partners. Only a man and a woman is created by God for the purpose of marriage. Why did God do this? Why God did this? Verse 7. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. God's purpose was that these two human beings, a man and a woman, would be joined and hold fast. They would be united. They would cleave to each other. It's the word proskaleo and it means to glue or to adhere. And if you glue two pieces of wood in a proper wood joint and try them to pull them apart, if you've done it well, the pieces, the wood will, will splinter because it has become one. That is the picture here. And the result, well let me say, God's intention was that the man and the woman would be in a deep, inseparable relationship with each other. And here's the result of what God did. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. This relationship in marriage will become so full and unified that in God's declaration, the married man and woman become one flesh. The manifestation, the manifestation of the one flesh union are the physical sexual union and the miraculous process of procreation. Where an individual child is born from a man and a woman. And it's one of God's most, I think, most powerful, beautiful displays of the two becoming one. And if you've had the privilege, as many of you have had, to have a spouse, to have a wife, and then have her give birth to a child. And, and to wonder, of all miracles, here is a living person. It is one person from the two. And it, it is a miraculous, it's a beautiful, it's a powerful demonstration of the two becoming one. And then God seals it. Verse 9, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God's command regarding what he did in verse 9. This is God's creation. Man is not to cause separation of what God joined. But is this realistic for life? Is this, is this really realistic? Look at Mark 10 verse 10. We see the reaction of the disciples. In the house his disciples also asked him again about the same manner. They're wondering about this. And we'll look at Matthew 19. It gets a little more clear. Uh, but Jesus' response is riveted on the purpose of God. He will not let go of this. He is riveted on who is God and what does he desire in the creation of marriage. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus' answer is clear. It is concise. This answer, I think, must also be understood in the context of the situation between Herod Antipas and his acquired stolen wife, Herodias. 
Think of this. Jesus has not backed down at all in expressly speaking of both a man and a woman divorcing in order to remarry and that being adultery. Now when Jesus responds to the Pharisees in the parallel account in Matthew 19, I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 19 now, verse 1. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to look at verse 9. And it's in that setting where Jesus has gotten together with his disciples in the house following the confrontation with the Pharisees. And, and Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, pornea, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. This is sometimes called the exception clause or the adultery exception clause. And it's sometimes used to justify divorce. But I do not believe that is what this verse is providing. In Matthew chapter 19, uh, John Piper explains, Jesus does not use the word adultery here when he says except for sexual immorality. He does not say except for adultery, which is what we would expect him to say if he were referring to adultery. End quote. The word Jesus does use here for sexual immorality is pornea, which means premarital sexual fornication or sexual immorality, as some translations have it. If we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. And this is the only gospel which brings to us Joseph considering possibly divorcing Mary. And it's interesting that it occurs in Matthew. We read here of Joseph considering divorcing his betrothed Mary. Not married, but betrothed. Which in the days of Christ was far more committed than even an engagement. It was actually a legal contract at that time, but it was not marriage. Divorcing his betrothed Mary because it appears from all that he can imagine she has committed fornication. He loves her, he trusts her, but he is seeing that she is pregnant. I mean, he, he is dealing with an issue no man has ever had to deal with besides him. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning before they were married, before they had union, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now Piper again writes here, the word for divorce here is the same as in Matthew 19.9. Moreover, Matthew says that Joseph was just, or he was righteous in resolving to divorce Mary. There is no suggestion that Joseph would have been prohibited from marrying someone after divorcing Mary in this betrothed situation. His conclusion, Piper's conclusion, is that in Matthew 19.9, the inspired apostle is showing us that Jesus' prohibition of remarriage does not apply to Joseph and Mary's betrothal situation. In fact, in John 8.41... If we read that 
Note that. Here the Jewish leaders make a very slanderous implied accusation that Jesus was born out of wedlock. That he was born out of pornea. A, por- a premarital sexual immorality. In other words, the phrase except for ma- immorality in Matthew 19.9 was speaking about a betrothed person such as that Joseph was to Mary who discovers his bride-to-be is involved in sexual immorality. In betrothal, and for that reason, he may justly divorce and marry another. Jesus is not speaking in Matthew 19.9 about a married couple and is not saying they would be just in divorcing because of adultery. Now, this is not the most common position held on this verse among conservative evangelicals and even among Reformed teachers. But I believe it is a diligent and accurate exegesis of the text. It keeps the pieces together. It makes all pieces able to to be able to rely upon the other and show us truth. Another point in favor of this interpretation is the reaction of the disciples. Turn back with me to Matthew 19. Verse 10. And here was the disciples' reaction to this, their response. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of man with his wife, it's better not to marry. The disciples are shocked. The very thing that many longed for had with Jesus' words taken on unbearable requirements, permanence and selfless love. This is till death do us part. This requires a selfless love. They conclude and say to Jesus, if such is the case of the man and the wife, it's better not to marry. But then Jesus says to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And I'm sure I read that verse and that would be a whole mouthful and a sermon full in itself to go through that. But what Jesus is saying is his ways can be performed. His ways can be endured and lived out. He will provide that for them. Now I want to look at divorce in the Old Testament since this is the topic of the moment. Now in the Old Testament this would have been Scripture used by Christ And well known by Jewish Pharisees at the time of Christ. Remember, this is the context in which these men are thinking. This is how to derive what is God's will. Exodus 20 verse 14. One of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Very clear and concise. Divorce in Israel. Ezra. If you go to Ezra 9 and 10. You're going to read a very interesting set of passages there. God expressly forbade Israelites from marrying Canaanites back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Do not intermarry. But upon their return to Judah after they had been exiled in Babylon that is precisely what happened. And it happened in a huge way. Turn to Ezra please. Ezra 9, verses 1 through 4. 
When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers had been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Time of great sorrow. Heartbreak for Ezra. The people we're talking about here have intermarried for the purpose of, of mixing the, the, the very nations that were their enemies. Very nations that held idolatry. These men would marry these women and what would happen? They would begin to worship their idols. And Ezra sees this coming. And it's a tragedy after all that God has done. And God has even just recently brought them back from Babylon. After exile. Then they're back in the country. And it seems to have taken hardly any time at all for them to have fallen back into the old sin. Action was to be taken. Ezra chapter 10 verse 3. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. A little insight on this verse. The word for divorce in this passage is not the usual Hebrew phrase, phrase used for divorce. It is used only in that way in this particular place in the Old Testament. The Hebrew expression also for have married women is also not the usual phrase for marriage and is only used in this way here in verse 2 and in Nehemiah chapter 13 in a very similar situation that we're going to look at. This may indicate that Ezra does not consider these relationships to be legitimate marriage or the sending away is actual divorce. And I raise these up because this is not an easy issue to wrestle with. Nehemiah chapter 13 is a similar situation to Ezra. Nehemiah 13, 23 through 27. The next book over. In those days, wrote Nehemiah, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who had beloved of his God and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. This time, there is no mention of a divorce or sending away. It's, it's, it's interesting. In Ezra, he pulled out his own hair. Here he uh, is actually doing it to the guys. You have corporal public punishment 
You have a required oath and you have a very strong warning. There may have been more. Some actually say it is assumed that Ezra's requirement of putting away would have been established precedent for Nehemiah to also demand in this situation. However, we do not see that in this account. And we do not know that that is what happened. Look at God's divorce of Israel as a nation. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8. In Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8 we read, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. And after that verse we see a very interesting thing. Israel was less unfaithful than Judah. Jeremiah 3.11, Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. But God did not divorce Judah. And then look at God's plea to Israel even after this divorce. He says, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you. For I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Then you have transgressed, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. And have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. He's pleading, repent, repent and return. And then we, we must see God's enduring love shown through the 8th century B.C. prophet Hosea. Amazing story here. Hosea in chapter 1 verse 2 says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea the Lord, the Lord said, by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This man, this prophet, was commanded to go and marry a prostitute. Why? We see because it was not for Hosea's well-being and to have a sweet and happy marriage. It was to show the harlotry of Israel. God had a purpose in this. God had a purpose in having him marry her. And what happens? Turn to hope. If you could, turn to Hosea real quick. I know we're jumping all around, but I want you to see this in the Word itself. So as you think these things through, you will be able to rely not on what I've said, but on what the Word of God says. Hosea chapter 3 is a very short chapter. Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who looks to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. He's telling him to go get your bride who is now a prostitute and bring her back. Love her though she has no love for you and loves everyone but you. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half omers of barley. And I said to her, 
You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the hearted, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 or 10 through 16. Another very important verse if we're looking at divorce and, and marriage. Malachi 2 verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenants of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. What is it? He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this being awake and aware. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altars of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring... Therefore take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For, for, if covers one, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And then I'd look, like to look at uh, the New Testament scriptures, Luke 16, verse 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 4. Or do you not know brethren for I speak to those who know the law. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We know that this is an illustration used to present being a Pharisee with a belief that you are saved or justified through the law versus by faith alone. But Jesus uses, or but Paul uses a very clear illustration that we must take to heart too. This command that through death, the marriage bond is over. And you are free to marry another. But it, that is really the limitation that it gives us here. Otherwise she would be called an adulteress. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 through 16. And this, then we'll move into a little bit of an explanation on this. 
First Corinthians 10, verse 7 through 16. Or 7, excuse me, First Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And there's a lot to be spoken of in those verses as well. What does this mean? It's no longer under bondage. I believe that what he's saying there, it doesn't mean that, he, that she's released from commitment of the marital vow, but that she is released at that point, or he is released from having to somehow keep peace. They no longer have to adhere to that marriage. If the other leaves, we can let that go. I don't believe that that necessarily means that she is free to remarry at that time. Now, one preacher explained the challenge of this issue of divorce and remarriage and simplified it into three camps. The permanents, the semi-permanents, and the permissive. Permiss, or excuse me, permanence is no divorce, no remarriage. The semi-permanence is divorce and no remarriage. And permissive is allows for divorce and remarriage. I don't think it separates out that easily. This writer also gave examples of eight men that are excellent Bible teachers whom he also affirms as faithful brothers and whom if I gave them their names to you, you would all know them very well. And they fit into different ones of these camps, even different from what he believes. And I want to resist the temptation to choose a camp or to identify with one man or a group of men I admire. This is not an easy issue to discern and it is not one to break fellowship over with someone who disagrees. I identify with what one man wrote. I do not claim to have seen or said the last word on this issue, nor am I above correction, should I prove to be wrong. I am aware that men more godly than I have taken different views. Nevertheless, every person and church must teach and live according to the dictates of its own conscience informed by a serious study of Scripture. The interpretation of Scriptures that I have presented today would be primarily in defense of a permanence view. However, the permanence view that I have heard explained allows for no divorce, no remarriage at any time for any reason. My personal understanding is that the Lord has allowed for divorce in instances of continued hardness of heart. And I realize that some would say that allows entirely for me to give a personal preference rather than a biblical reason for divorce in some cases. It would be simpler to take a no divorce, no remarriage, no way, no how. But I don't believe that Scripture makes that requirement in certain situations as we have seen in Scripture. The hardness of man's heart is as prevalent today as it has ever been. In our global and mass media world, there are forced child brides. There are deep addictions and practice of violence and perversion. There is human trafficking. There is the total corruption of the legal system and how it deals with these things. And one might say, those are extreme examples. 
And that's my point. Are there some instances that might be exceptions? My belief is that there are. Yet in my role in counseling and serving others regarding a mar- marriage, I have worked for the permanence of the marriage covenant. There are so many instances or situations where great care, wisdom, and love are needed to help married couples in great distress. Scenarios of the most extreme kind are not fictional at all. Much prayer, love, scripture, time, and wisdom is often needed in determining the best steps to take for God's glory and also for the safety and well-being of all involved. I believe that scripture teaches what I've attempted to lay out. God hates divorce. God commands against divorce. The hard heart of man resulted in God providing an allowance for divorce. Marriage is the beautiful design of God. It is for the purpose of raising godly offspring, sanctification in Christ, and demonstrating the love of Christ for His church. Scripture gives numerous examples of the enduring love of God for His people, even though we are sinful. The marriage of one man and one woman is one of, if not the most clear, human demonstrations of that love. This may raise questions. That's, we're ready to talk. And, and don't hesitate. Because there are situations that are going on now that are very difficult to understand. What we want to do is glorify God. We want to follow His Word. And we want to love those who are in our assembly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Scriptures. I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that if, if those are troubled who may have been through divorce and remarriage, who may have those dear to them that are going through that, realize that that does not make them second-class citizens. That God works in all lives. And that He is ready to restore and build and strengthen those who confess sin and turn and follow Him. Lord, give us such a desire to please You. Lord, marriage just as was going on at the time of Christ, marriage today is being beaten on every side. And more and more, it seems, are just opting not even to do it, Father, and to live in sin. We pray, Father, and I pray for our church, our families, our marriages, that, that we will be a beacon of the love of Christ to this world. That they will see in our marriages your love for your church. And that they will realize that you are a great God. And yet, Lord, our marriages are well, we're, they're full of sinners like me. So we need you. We need your grace, Lord. We need your heart. Please help us. And Father... Above all, I thank you for your enduring love. As you showed through Hosea, as you showed in Jeremiah, as you show throughout your word, as you show through your son Jesus Christ, that when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that when even we were the enemies of God, Christ was crucified on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. Please draw some to faith in that gospel. For you are risen and victorious.
In your name we pray. Amen.